Well, good evening, everybody. There was a wise man who once said, there are two sides to every argument, comma, including this one. <laughs> That's why I'm here as effectively your cuckoo in this nest. And before you hear three other um, views that will be different from mine, I ought to introduce myself and explain the basis on which I'm speaking. I'm a retired government servant appearing here in an entirely personal capacity. I'm not speaking for any arm of government. Until 2006, I worked for more than 25 years in the British Foreign Service. And those of us here who've lived and worked events, and that's quite a few of the people in this room, are of course shaped by those events. We are to an important extent where we have been. So I'll get that out of the way at the outset. In the 1980s, I served in Warsaw in the British Embassy in the last years of communism. And before that, I was in the British UN mission in New York at the time when the UK rather unexpectedly found itself at war, both in the South Atlantic with Argentina and also, which was even more unexpected and almost as serious, with the then US ambassador to the UN in Manhattan. <laughs> in the mid-1990s, I was in the embassy in Prague helping new Czech democratically accountable security and intelligence services try to find their feet after decades of communism. After that experience abroad, I came back to 10 years in London, mainly spent in helping to deliver the several accountabilities of the intelligence community, to the Foreign Secretary principally, but also to the Oversight Committee of Parliamentarians, the ISC, to which John has referred, who had their first public session last week, to the two commissioners, retired judges whose job it is to audit the work of the intelligence community and of course to the law. I was also engaged in communicating to the press, mainly the print media it has to be said, when those accountabilities hit the news media. And that press experience means I'm especially pleased to be able to accept the invitation to join this panel here today at the Reuters Institute. I'm not here to defend every aspect of the British secret state nor to urge prosecutions under the Official Secrets Acts for Guardian journalists. Indeed, I am a Guardian reading national security wonk. <laughs> Some of our audience may be reassured to learn that there are such people, or they may be horrified, I don't know. <laughs> I do start from the presumption, which is not universally shared, that because the state is threatened by opponents who exploit secrecy to do the citizens harm, the state is well advised carefully to deploy secrecy in response the better to protect itself. A capacity to collect secret intelligence, including signals intelligence, seems to me a prudent insurance policy for a state such as Britain, whose reach remains global and whose prosperity depends on the strength of its network around the world. Clearly, however, that capacity needs to be accountable and to command public trust. When that trust is threatened, as it certainly is today, it's all the more important not to lose our balance when we try to restore it. So I'm sure some of you will say, as some of the columnists uh, in these um, great news organs have already said, that with a shrug normally over the last months, spies spy. Well, yes, they do, but I'd add, I would add that they do it because they are asked to by elected ministers, and they do it in circumstances that governments can oversee and approve. That's in, I'm talking about the United Kingdom, but this goes for other Western countries as well. Nobody I knew in the intelligence community at GCHQ or anywhere else wished to live in a surveillance state, an East Germany for the internet age. Hmm. Nor is the scale of resource for the intelligence community in the UK excessive. 
It costs annually about £3 billion. That's a lot of money, but it compares with defensive expenditure of about £46 billion and total public expenditure of £719 billion. So the secret world gets less than half of 1% of the total. I did, as, a, as an experiment this morning, I tried to look on the net to work out on the basis of the um, Office of National Statistics Household Expenditure Survey what the average family spends um, on, I took car insurance as a simple kind of analogy um, for collecting the rather arcane subject of collecting secret intelligence. I was told that in 2011, um, the average household week weekly expenditure was £483.60. That struck me as being actually rather higher than I thought it would be, but that's what it was. Out of that, £9.40 was spent on car insurance, or about 2%. So that's four times as much as is on average spent by the British citizen on populating its secret world. <coughs> Scale does matter, because most of the information the British government needs can and should be obtained from open sources. Secret intelligence very rarely provides the whole picture. It can be difficult to check, and it's sometimes wrong, as are open sources for that matter. But when opponents are determined to keep the full picture from government or law enforcement, secret intelligence can be and has been of very great value. That brings us to big data and Mr Snowden's theft of secret documents. I don't have long and will offer just five points of observation. First, big data, as Mr Patton has already pointed out, is by no means primarily a security issue. It would be if the Orwellian spectre of Brig Brother was a reality in this country, but it isn't. The intelligence community is not staffed by people who would tolerate such a venture, nor is it so resourced. The capability that GCHQ has sought to develop in the internet <coughs> age simply aims to replicate the lawful intrusion it sought to be able to do in the days of copper wire and bulldog clips. <laughs> to get a warrant from a foreign secretary to intercept an individual's communications in cases where those people might harm national security or commit serious crime. That is, to read a named individual's communications. The law requires individual warrants because of the potential level of intrusion into private life that interception involves. Of course the technology is not simple, but it'd be wrong to assume that because of the explosion in the volume of data carried in a multiplicity of complex ways over internet protocol, GCHQ and foreign secretaries have lost their bearings over the nature of the intrusion and the need for individual warrants. They have not. I urge sceptics just to spend a few minutes looking at any recent annual report from the Interception Commissioner, which records his meticulous audit of the process. It speaks a grey truth that no episode of spooks on television in this country could begin to capture if it wished to retain its audience. Second point... The uh, forensics men have a saying, they like to say, every contact leaves a trace. This is true, as many of us, the younger we are, the more we know it on the internet and in our dealings with the electronic world. Now try to imagine a state not troubling to make the investment to take an interest in those traces against the threats of, of the kind I've described. And at the same time, a state that's not doing that when we see, when citizens see every day, the potential and the conspicuous potential of big data to the commercial world, the Google that Mr. Patton described. I use Gmail and Apple's iCloud. Am I troubled by Google and Apple knowing so much about me and my traces and selling what they know to those who might in turn sell to me? The truthful answer is that I'm not very bothered. 
That doesn't mean that I said at nothing the right to privacy. I do rate it. But I also recognise that the notion of privacy is changing. Indeed, I see an important comparison with the fears that some are now expressing about the age of the legislation in the UK that governs GCHQ's lawful intercept. Goes back to an unpronounceable act, the Regulation of Investigatory Powers in 2000, and to the Intelligence Services Act in 1994. People compare that, uh, um, say that that is a long time ago and the internet's changed since then. But compare it with the legislation on data protection. That's 1988 and 1994. That legislation was also written before the real internet age, and increasingly, and interesting, the Data Protection Act of 1994 makes no reference to the word privacy in it anywhere. This week's Economist helpfully encourages us to start the public argument over the fight for personal space, online and offline, where cameras are now indeed ubiquitous. Third, this controversy is now an important part about Germany. I was very struck by a piece recently in the FT by Jan Takau, which argued that Germany should learn from this episode that the era of standing on the international sidelines is over and that it should invest more heavily in its own intelligence services to avoid future such embarrassments. A powerhouse such as Germany needs top intelligence to compete and to demonstrate it can move away from a strategic culture that blames evil America to one that accepts the harsh necessities and moral ambiguities of international politics. I agree with that assessment by Tekka. One of the reasons I think that Berlin, Washington and London have not to date enjoyed the strongest intelligence partnership is the consequence of Germany's underdeveloped collection capacity. Germany has long been strong on all source analysis of information but much weaker on the collection of secret intelligence. And collectors' clubs of the kind that Ge Germany is right, rightfully jealous of obviously place a premium on those who come to the table capable of adding, uh, contributing to that collection with, in real volume and with real skill. Fourth, the change in attitudes to secrecy and security since 9-11. And this addresses um, the point that Mr. Patton made about the the extraordinary insecurity of those who were in possession of those with Mr. Snowden who were authorised to be in possession of so many secrets. I make no excuse or apology for that. He's right that this is clearly a massive security breach. I just seek to place it in a context that maybe makes it more comprehensible. The US and the British communities were obliged to learn very quickly from the mistakes that had led us to that terrible day of 9-11. One lesson was the dangers of what was rightly seen as a failure to share secret intelligence among all those who might need to know it. Dare to share was the slogan that was used in the context of counterterrorism in the years immediately following 9-11. That represented a very great change on the restrictive security that had been the culture of the Cold War. It's hard not to conclude that it was the, that cultural change that led in turn to the situation in which hundreds of thousands of US citizens and security vetted citizens at that were in, possession, were in possession of some of the sensitive UK secrets stolen by Snowden. Fifthly and finally, whose call should it be on the damage done to collection capacity by Snowden's unlawful disclosures? It seems to me to be intellectually disingenuous to suggest that a newspaper editor is well placed to assess that potential damage and then to take decisions on publication based on his or her judgment alone. 
The successful conduct of secret intelligence collection operations depends upon a motley range of details, names, places, <coughs> communications arrangements, whose significance and sensitivity can't be guessed by any third party. And it really does take only one or two <coughs> innocuous-looking details to put the lives of secret sources at risk. I suspect that that is a point that will be well understood by investigative journalists in touch with sources who themselves are sensitively placed. So responsible journalism in the age of big data does need more humility by journalists when they try to assess the potential damage in publishing stolen secrets. Thank, Thank you. you.